You're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. It's long-form one-on-one conversations with veterans in the arts. This show is produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. My guest today was Arthur Boten, and I... uh, I was really looking forward to talking to Arthur for many reasons, but not the least of which is because he is the third place finalist in our inaugural 10 minute playwriting competition. And, you know, since January reading through, God, I don't know what it was, 160, 180, 10 minute plays, um, culling that down to a top 10 that then went to the judges our five distinguished judges who then called it down uh, and, and got us a, a you know, a, an order. Uh, I was going to say an OML list, but that sounds really military and inappropriate here. Uh, but basically, you know, broke it down into winners, uh, runner up, third place finalists, and et cetera, et cetera, all the way down the top 10. Um, obviously, it's a long process. There's so much that went into this competition um, on our end. And that obviously comes on the heels of all the work that the playwrights did to even write the damn things in the first place and get them to us. So it is a long road uh, to get a play into competition, much less to be a finalist. And Arthur is the first of our playwriting uh, finalists or winners that I've had the chance to speak to on the show. So for me to be able to sit down and talk with him meant a lot to me. Hope it meant a lot to him. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure. I want to tell you a little bit about his play, since obviously we will talk about it at length during the show. And I think if you're like me, uh, you'll appreciate knowing more about the man behind the play. Uh, I should say, first off, that the play will have a life at Veterans Repertory Theater in November. Can't remember what the weekend is. Let me look this up while I'm talking to you guys. I think it's. I want to say it's November 11th, but let me just double check that. Um, yeah, November. Well, 11th, 12th, and 13th. So the entire from a Friday to a Sunday, the weekend of Veterans Day. Um, yeah, that's right, because Veterans Day is on Friday the 11th. So that whole weekend, we will be having our inaugural 10-minute playwriting festival. It is called Death Before Dress Rehearsal. Um, it'll be all staged readings of a uh, of eighteen hand selected ten minute plays, all written by veterans, um, all ones that we've looked at, curated from the hundreds, literally that we have read, and certainly will be featuring the uh, winners and finalists of our competitions. So I'm thrilled that you guys will be able to see Arthur's play which is called Now Departed, uh, during that festival. And uh, we will live stream it. We're going to do it here at our parlor in Cornwall, New York. Uh, So it is going to be incredibly limited seating, but it is going to be a blast. It's going to be intimate, rollicking, chance to see the actors up close. It's just such a fun vibe. And we're going to live stream it for people that can't make it here in person. But uh, very excited to announce that on the show and um, and excited for you guys to see Arthur's play. Let me tell you a little bit about it. It is um, 
it's a slice of life, uh, which is incredibly, and I tell them this on the show, you know, the, there's a fine line between a slice of life uh, play and just lazy writing. <laughs> you know, um, sometimes when you hear, oh yeah, I, I wrote a character-based piece, I, you know, I don't know, seven, eight, nine times out of 10, it's going to end up being a sloppy, meandering, unfocused um, piece that you lose interest, you know, 20% of the way into it. That was not the case, uh, obviously, for Now Departed. Uh, obviously, it's hard to lose interest 20% of the way into a 10-minute play unless it's really abysmally written. But uh, in a 10-minute play, as I you know talk about in the episode, it has very specific demands that it makes on a writer. Um, you can't really mess around a whole lot. Yet Arthur does. He wrote this piece and it is a, um, you know, it is, it's character based and, um, you know, doesn't have an obvious tension yet it's compelling and yet you can't look away and there's, it leaves an indelible imprint and, uh, I won't give any spoilers as to why that is. Arthur, I think explains it at length as to why this piece that on the surface seems so, um, casual is actually um, moving and compelling. And that's incredibly hard to do in, in any play medium, but certainly in a 10-minute play where um, I think, you know, if I if I had to draw up the winning recipe for a, for a 10-minute play, I would say, you know, try to make it as most like a sketch that you can, you know, and have good, clear, you know, uh, character choices and, and tension and, and a dynamic that really jumps off the page. And this is a very literary, um, quiet slice of life, uh, piece that, um, you know, as I say, is, is deceptively simple and it, it's, it's a, just a fine piece of writing. And I think what, what I gravitated towards and I think what our judges picked up on was the craft, the amount of writing craft involved in the play. It's not surprising when you learn about Arthur and about the um, long career he's had as a fiction writer. The fact that he only transitioned into playwriting relatively recently, about eight years ago, is uh, shocking, but also really compelling because uh, and exciting. Because uh, it, it is incredible to see him shift so many fictional strengths into the world of, of playwriting, and uh, and the fact that it it you know seems to be very creatively inspiring for him, which I think bodes well for his work to come, which will be interesting for all of us. So, uh, yeah, it's a great piece of work. Obviously, or, or, well, not obviously. I don't know why I said that. Uh, maybe not obviously. Arthur's. Um, Arthur is, we've, we've not had anyone on like Arthur yet. And that's kind of a glib thing to say, because I, I think every one of our guests has been remarkably different from any other guest we've had on. Um, but in Arthur's case, that uh, individuality stands out because he is the first, or let me say the earliest Cold War veteran we've had on the show. He served in the army uh, for two years, the late 50s, early 60s. So he was right in that lull between the Korean War and the Vietnam War. 
And uh, yet the army made a epic imprint on his life, not in a positive way. I won't give any spoilers into that. Uh, you'll hear him describe his military uh, service during the episode. But it's definitely one of those, um, you know, the, the, the military doesn't leave you where it finds you. Uh, for better or for worse, you are going to end up in a very different place for your time in the military. I think that's fair to say. And uh, Arthur was certainly no exception. And to see how that kind of forced dalliance with a uh, warrior path turned out for him is interesting and informative. Um, so uh, an interesting, interesting guy. And one of the things I loved about Arthur, and uh, just to give a and more of a compliment than just to say he's an interesting guy is I think the amount of introspection and um, reflection that he's done and, and the amount that he's able to articulate about, <clears throat> you know, his past, his life choices, his writing craft, his sensitivity uh, for a character, uh, his ear for dialogue is, is I think really interesting. And something you that that degree of self awareness isn't always there for um, for all writers. Sometimes there's things happening that they um, just might happen intuitively or haven't. Uh, they can't necessarily articulate. So I, I really enjoyed talking to him about it. Um, I don't think there's a lot else I have to say to set this up for you. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the artistic director at Veterans Repertory Theater, and this is the Savage Wonder of Arthur Bowden. So Arthur, are you in Maine right now, I'm assuming? I am in Maine. I'm in Topsom, Maine. And I'm assuming, are, are, are you vying to become uh, the next Stephen King and do primarily Maine-based writing? <laughs> and I say that because there seemed to be a very partisan Maine-ish, New England-ish element uh, to your work. And it seems like that's something you have done. Like you do write generally about Maine, right? Um, well, it's a straightforward question, but the answer is a little more complicated. Um, I moved to Maine in 1985, so I've been living here a long time. But I only got into playwriting mm. um, pretty recently, about eight years ago. And before that, I was primarily a fiction writer. And by no means is all my fiction set in Maine. Okay. Most of my plays, I mean, there aren't that many of them, but most of my plays are, are set in Maine. But there are certainly some that are, it's not, a, they're, it doesn't say what state they're in. And gotcha. It, yeah. Well, it, it seemed to me that you have a great ear, it seems, for dialogue, and especially dialogue around your area. Like there's a distinct New Englander, and I guess a Maine-ish uh, cadence and and semantics and word choice in your characters. Um, is that something that comes naturally to you that you just have a good ear? Or is that something you consciously worked on for this piece for Now Departed? I think I naturally have a good ear. I don't know if people are supposed to say that about themselves, but <clears throat> <laughs> when I was in high school and started studying foreign languages, um, 
it, it just was people around me were struggling. It, it, no matter how hard they worked, just they just couldn't sound like the teacher or like the recording. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, it came it came natural to me. Um, I, I also like foreign languages. I've always been interested in things like that, even before I started writing. I also have always been interested in accents and um, regional dialects long before I moved to Maine. Those were things that appealed to me. Also, I have lived abroad, um, which is something that if you do it for an extended period, it just makes, it sharpens your ear. Um, I've worked, I mean, this is, I'm not sure how relevant this is, but one of my jobs was to be a foreign student advisor. I did that a total of four years at two different universities. And well, guess what a foreign student advisor is doing all day long? He's talking to people who's most of whom have English as a second language. So Mm -hmm. there are a lot Mm -hmm. of accents and um, you have to be, you have a good, you have to have a good ear. You have to. I've uh, never, (laughs) I've never thought of that. That's, that's actually really, um, I, I wonder if there's anything formal that's ever been studied with that, with the correlation between a writer's ear and the ability to grasp foreign languages. That actually makes a lot of sense to me that there should be a correlation between those two. Yeah, I, I haven't thought of it in a larger sense, but just it in my life, it seems relevant. Um, when my wife and I first moved to Maine in 1985, we were not well informed about Maine. <clears throat> Most people who moved to Maine from somewhere else already have a connection. They, their family used to summer in Maine. Mm-hmm. They went to college in Maine, or they have a Maine grandmother or so, something. I didn't have any of that. So we were just looking for a, uh, a cheaper place to live in a beautiful place. You know? And, and um, so only after we moved to Washington County, which is the northernmost, it's on the coast, in the northernmost corner. The next thing up is New Brunswick, Canada, from from Washington County. Only after we'd been living there for a while did we realize just how remote it was. Maine is small in population, but large in area. And um, um, so um, we found ourselves in a, a kind of isolated from a lot of the things that we normally would be interested in. Sure. But there was a rich life there of a, of a different kind, and we both paid close attention to it. And my wife, who is now deceased, um, actually published um, a novel and a book of stories that are very much based on our, our experience. That's not to say that she wrote autobiographically, but she was drawing on the situation, the the economics, the culture, the mindset, the physical location, the hardships of the winter, and so on. Um, that that's, so that seems to me that you would have a great insight in that because that that um, being a visitor to a new place, you know, you come in with that clarity, with no preconceived notions. That probably gives you, you know, that um, objective view that a writer would need. That if you naturally had lived there, 
you know, your whole life, you might be blind to. Uh, did you find that? Did you find that you kind of could see and discern things that maybe others would have missed because they just take it for granted? It's possible. I, 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 I don't think either of us exactly felt that we understood the people in the place better than the people who lived there and the natives. But we certainly felt that there was um, a, well, call it a, uh, a new world to be discovered. Yeah. People often say when they go abroad, and this has been my experience, that uh, especially the first time or the first time in a, country, a new country, you pay more attention. Your, yeah. your senses are sharpened. Perhaps you know that from your own experience. And um, I guess there was an element of that in moving to Washington County, Maine. Well, it's so, almost like you, you know the right questions to ask, too, right? Because it, it's not even that you know more than the locals, because, of course, they're going to know the history of the place and have a lot of personal connections. But it's almost like you know what curiosities to kind of discover and what things to pick up on and what indicators are there because you're, you're walking in with fresh eyes, or at least I would think. Yeah, I, I, I could agree with that. But, but we were also trying to fit in. We, you know, we didn't, <laughs> right. we didn't want to be perpetually the people from away. And uh, I'm not sure that we ever entirely overcame that. But um, uh, we were active in a, in a local congregational church, which had a nice mixture of natives and people from away. It, mm. it was about maybe 50-50. And um, that was really the main source of our uh, entree, such as it, such as mm-hmm. it was, mm-hmm. into the community. Anyway, I said that we were not well informed when we moved there, but the fact is we stayed for 16 years. And if it had been a, a, a disaster, we would never have stayed. In fact, it was a very rich and rewarding experience. Where I live now, which is in more southern Maine near Brunswick, um, is much more like the rest of the country. Um, uh, there are far more yeah. people who, who are not Maine natives. And just when I, when, you know, when I just go to town each day, I don't think this is a different place from any place mm. I've ever been before. Whereas in Millbridge, um, where I used to live in Washington County, um, for a long time, I had the sense this is unlike any place I've ever been before. <laughs> Well, it makes me wonder, doesn't a living in a place like that make it, when it is so idiosyncratic, does it make it hard to write things that are not going to be infused with that in some way? Because it's like, well, I can't write that spy thriller in Geneva necessarily because I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm immersed in something so radically different and interesting that I can't help but infuse everything with that. Did, was that ever an issue? Um. I, uh, yeah, I kind of lost that question. I, my mind went off while, <laughs> while you were talking. <laughs> um, well, but I mean, just that sense of living in a place that is so rich with character that it's hard to write something that's not going to be infused with that place. Yeah, because it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm here. It's just too interesting. I, I, th- I think there is an element of that. And it's certainly affected my wife, mm. who uh, within three or four years of living there, published a novel in which every single character was a native of that place. Her name was, her writer's name uh, was Elaine Ford. 
and the novel that she published that was that I'm just referring to uh, is called Monkey Bay. <clears throat> it was published in 1989, and it was an extremely brave or foolhardy thing to do. Often it's hard to know the difference. Um, she never really did get in trouble for it, but it was very, very risky. <laughs> she, I think, was really affected. Um, she had a novel of sensibility, which I don't have. And <clears throat> she could she could picture people's whole lives and a sequence of actions. So I think what you've been describing of living in the place and being deeply affected by it and the people who live there and being unable or really to write anything else, at least at that time, mm -hmm. I think that did happen to her mm -hmm. um, to, to a lesser extent to me, though. I certainly wrote some stories that were strongly influenced by living in uh, rural Maine. Yeah. Did you travel? Did you continue to travel while you lived there? And did you feel like you needed to get out in order just to keep other senses sharp and other inspirations, other streams of inspiration going? Um, not as much as you might think. Teachers, mm -hmm. my wife was a professor at the University uh, of Maine. And of course, as professors do, she had the summers off. But apart from visiting family in other states, um, and one or two trips abroad to see friends or relatives. I, we didn't flee. No, there, mm. there was no, okay, you know, got to get out of here now. <laughs> Even some Maine natives, especially when they reach retirement, they move immediately to Florida, at least for half the year, six months plus one day for <laughs> tax reasons. But I've... I've never been in that category. I, I tend to I tend to live twelve months a year wherever I live, and if I travel, it's just for just for a couple of weeks. Okay, talk about a little a, bit, a little bit about what that was like um, with your wife. Um, were you both writing at the same time? Did you you were both teaching and writing and kind of alternating back and forth and feeding off each other? Is that the dynamic a little bit? Um, Elaine had the uh, the. the She's had a she had a career as a writer that I have never had. Um, both of us wrote for a long time, but she's the one that published books, seven books of fiction, mm -hmm. um, um, five novels, and two books of stories. I have never published a book. Um, we both started out teaching at the university in the mid eighties, um, but she was tenure track, and I was. Uh, mm. an adjunct. Mm -hmm. So I lasted about five years doing that. And then during the 90s, still living in Washington County, I worked for a small weekly newspaper, uh, which has now gone out of business. But it, it, was, um, it was a very interesting experience, the Down East Coastal Press uh, out of Cutler, Maine. And um, I, I did a lot of writing for them most of it uh, nonfiction, although yeah. I, I did occasionally write a humorous verse that was completely made up. I was also the proofreader for that newspaper um, during much of the 90s. Mm. By chance, only about 10 days ago, I saw again the husband and wife 
owners and publishers of that newspaper. They still live in Washington County, although as retirees, they spend half the year traveling mostly in the in the South. Um, gotcha. So we had a lot of reminiscing about that period in in the nineties. Um, how did you like it? How did you how did you how did that strike you, especially as a writer? Working on the newspaper. Working on the newspaper, yeah, and having that the constant deadlines, the nonfiction bent, all that. Yeah, I actually liked it partly, I think, because I was just ready. I wasn't mm-hmm. really I didn't have this, you know, novel that I would be writing if only I had the time. Oh, <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing is uh, when I was in high school. I actually thought I was going to become a journalist. I I was, in my senior year, the editor of the high school newspaper. This was in New York City. Mm. And although I am a native of Michigan, I had moved to New York by that time. Um, And um, that never worked out until I was much, much older, many decades later than I got to work on a newspaper. So even though it was not the New York Times <laughs> or, or even the Portland Press Herald, it was a, a newspaper, a real newspaper with deadlines and with, with beats and with opinion columns. And because it was such a small newspaper, <clears throat> individuals could be very creative. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody who wanted to um, could carry a camera and snap pictures of uh, just things you encountered, and the newspaper um, m- might very well print those things mm. because it was all local news. So sure, it, sure. So <clears throat> it wasn't hard. It was very fulfilling. Proofreading, however, is something that you do. Yeah, you can only do so much of that un- unless you can. Your intelligence, your your thoughts are your enemy when you're a proofreader. You really, it, the more mechanical you can be about it, the more effective you are as a pr- proofreader. So I kind of wore out as a proofreader. I, I didn't. So that wasn't that wasn't like an additional duty. That was actually an assigned task of like, no, you are going to sit and for six seven hours proofread the paper before we publish. Yeah, since it was a weekly newspaper that came out on Tuesday. Um, Monday was proofreading day, and oh. and I and I, I mean, it was a job that I accepted. I, I sure, sure. I didn't do it at the point of a gun. <laughs> <laughs> I was paid for it, but uh, but yeah, after whatever it was, six years or whatever, I, w- I was ready to stop proofreading. But I did enjoy the writing part of it. And another thing is, I'm a very slow uh, fiction writer. But when you, as you already indicated, with a newspaper, there's a new issue yeah. every week. There are deadlines. And so there's no time to dilly-dally or shilly-shally. you got to <laughs> produce. See? Uh, only when I wrote my opinion columns, then I would revert to my fiction writing have bad habits and <laughs> want to have every sentence perfect, every word perfect. The luxury of time. I know. Yeah. It's a, what's, what, what's that old saying there? There was some, some, somebody came up with this, but they said, you know, if you give a, a writer a cocktail napkin, he'll write you a story on a cocktail napkin. If you give him 4,000 blank pages, it's going to be a 4,000 page story. It's just what, what is the canvas you have to work on and you'll fill it. And if you have that deadline, sometimes cracking the whip is actually going to get it out. And 
it'll be just fine. You know, what was it, what was it like for you um, with your wife writing and publishing? Obviously you said, you know, you weren't angst ridden about the novel that you're not writing while you were working on the newspaper, but was her work, how did it rub off on you? How did it interact with you? How did it intersect with what you were doing? Did it get your short stories going? Did it, did it fuel anything in you? What, what was the dynamic just having that much creative work in the house? Um, my wife and I, I had a very good relationship and an intellectual connection. So I really don't remember any time when uh, there were issues of, of jealousy or competitiveness. And I actually was able to be helpful to her. Mm-hmm. I, I, I felt that she was a more talented writer than I, mm-hmm. um, but not an awfully outgoing or self-assertive person. Um, there were a lot of things that a writer needs to do. It's even truer now than it was then to promote himself or herself and she just didn't have that personality, that kind of drive. So to make to to cut to the, uh, the the key thing, I did a lot of I did all the submitting of work for mm. both of us. And although she did at one time and another have a literary agent, especially after the publication of her first novel, I had a direct hand in the publication of mm. two or three of her books and most of her stories. So that was a creative outlet for me. And I could, you know, I could be happy if sure. something would happen to her. So what did that, what did that do for your writing? Did, did it do anything? Was it irrelevant to your writing or did it somehow feel like a good working idea of like, Oh, Hey, you know, if, if I ever want to tell this story or even years yeah. later, yeah, I remember how to execute X, Y, and Z, or I remember you know, did, was there anything like that, that, that there was a rub off on you? I think the main thing that I got from her was, um, and she got from me, was we were each other's first readers and mm. um, uh, provided editorial comment that the other trusted. That's not to say that the writer would always do what the other one said, right. Right. but, but um, it, it is important to have someone uh, whose opinion you trust. That doesn't mean you can't get other opinions as well. Um, well, since I was doing all the submitting, I, I learned about a lot about that and how to keep the records and how, which magazines might be open to a certain type of writing. You don't send genre fiction to the New Yorker. You don't send literary fiction to Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine and uh, <laughs> and so on. Um, the other main thing that I learned from my wife was uh, she had a very concise and plain spoken style. And I it doesn't necessarily show up in the play that I submitted to veterans repertory theater but um or or for that matter in any of my plays but uh, uh, my natural tendency especially when i was beginning as a writer was to write very long sentences and rather Mm. flowery uh, 
$64 vocabulary rather than $2 vocabulary. And um, it was not so much that she, you know, put red marks, but I, I had the, um, on my work, but I had the example of her work, which mm. was very good. And I, so I, I learned from that. I learned from that. Um, were, when did you start, um, when did you start creatively writing? Was it, had it always been with you and it just was intermittent and it came and went? Was there a time that you were like, okay, I didn't want to buckle down and really focus just on my creative writing? What, what was that journey like for you? Yeah, when I was in my 20s, I was definitely thinking that I would like to be a writer. And that, but I was very, very inefficient or mm. uh, I, I, I just didn't do it. I, I mean, looking back, I, I wonder if I really, um, I wasn't compelled the way some writers are. Um, I got more serious about it as time passed, but um, I never took a creative writing course in high school or college. Mm -hmm. And if I had done, that doesn't guarantee anything, but I wish I had done. I wish I had done. Mm -hmm. It would have helped me to, to buckle down more and to have a more realistic idea of how serious was I about this? Oh. I, um, I'm being as accurate as I can, but for one thing, it's a long time ago. And for another thing, we think about our motivations and we think about our things that we did, didn't do as well as we would have liked, but it doesn't necessarily mean we've, we've yet figured them out. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I look back at, how I wanted to be a writer in my twenties and how little I did about it. Um, and I, I'm just bewildered. I don't fully understand it because, because I really do love writing and I am very fulfilled by it when I do it, no matter how hard it is. And it is often very hard. I do feel fulfilled by it. And I just don't know why it took me so long to buckle down. Mm. Do you remember what the first thing is that you wrote, whether or not it got published or ever saw the light of day? Do you remember what it, the first thing was that you creatively just were inspired to put pen to paper on? Well, I did do a, um, a graduate program in creative writing um, back in the, uh, uh, when I was in my thirties and um, I, I, it's hard to know just which of the stories was first, but mm -hmm. uh, but I, I I did write several at that time. And did you find like the bug had bit you officially at that point? Was that kind of the start of a more consistent output? Or did you find that, yeah, there was still a big hiatus in between and I could have done more with that? I'm afraid there continue to be <laughs> hiatuses or whatever the plural of hiatus is. <laughs> There continue to be hiatuses. What do you find now that inspires you, that drives you? Is there something, I think there's that you know, famous saying that uh, all creative people have really one or two ideas that they will just continue to chew away at in their work, but just approaching the problem from different places. Do you have something like that? Are you um, 
more diverse in what motivates you? Are you looking for wildly different stories? Hey, I just wrote this great slice of life. Now I'd like to do, now I'm going to do the murder mystery that I've always wanted to do. What is it? Where are you drawing your inspiration from now? Um, there are, there are a couple of things and they're, they're different. Um, one is the playwriting form, mm-hmm. which I've only come to pretty recently. Um, I was pleasantly surprised uh, that uh, I took to it once I started doing it without ever really having prepared for it, except that I went to play productions, you know, during, during my life. I've seen plenty of plays. I've read a few. But when I actually sat down and started to write plays in, I don't, I don't want to overstate it, but in, in, in some ways it seems it has come easier writing plays, even though I was at an advanced age when I started, than writing fiction. I haven't abandoned fiction. I still love fiction. I have stories that are partway complete that I look forward to finishing. But right now, um, I guess I'm, I'm gratified by this new discovery. When you get to a certain age, you don't expect to discover a new talent. You, you, know, you think that whatever it is that you might possibly be any good at, has already expressed itself, has yeah. already emerged somehow. So that that was a very pleasant surprise. And I'm still coasting on that, still milking that. In terms of subject matter, I am very interested. There are certain themes that, whether I intend it or not, um, tend to recur in my, my work. I love it. Uh, this again is something that can perhaps be better exploited in a play than in fiction. I I love it. Um, This isn't really the subject, but just a device. I love it when people misunderstand one another. I like, I like it when uh, people are having a conversation and well into the conversation, they realize, or one of them realizes that, He'd got something wrong. Or another version of that would be people to uh, take a very important decision based on a faulty understanding of Mm. of a situation. That interests me. Um, It interests me when, um, I suppose this is a characteristic of, of just all older people, there's a certain amount of looking back and trying to reevaluate um, what your life was like, what it meant, revisiting certain situations. They may have been a very long time ago, but what really happened? How might it have been different? Um, mm. Things like that. Um, I am interested in ideas in in literature. Um, I like to read books, fiction plays um, in which I'm, I mean, I, I, I love humor. I try to write humor, but um, there's got to be some meat on the bones. There's got to be something besides just ho, ho, and what's the next joke or what's right, the next right. thing, uh, action. So um, I, um, 
I like I like to uh, to have ideas in a play or in a story without the the piece of writing feeling like it exists in order to dramatize the idea. I mean, you want the characters to be front and center. If you're writing fiction, you want people to engage with the characters and the relationships and so on. But if it also says something about human nature or where the human race <laughs> right. is going or <laughs> uh, falling off a cliff or whatever it's doing, that 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 would be nice too to have something yeah. that you can carry away and think about. Um, yeah, to, to, I mean, I, I know this is a hard thing sometimes to verbalize because it's it's like um, I remember the old Garfield cartoon where his owner asks him, "Hey, when you walk, do you put you start with your left foot and then go right, or how does that work?" And then Garfield can't walk because now he's thinking about it and he, he can't figure it out. So, um, without getting super in the weeds, maybe talk a little bit if you can about how to integrate a love of ideas into something like playwriting. Do you find that it helps you to start with the idea or is it best just to start with character and then kind of start to see what it is you're creating and go, oh, you know, this is the idea. This is the hook. This is the thing that's going to cement. This is the rug that's going to tie the room together in this whole piece. Well, speaking about my own experience, I, I really don't have prescriptions for anyone else. Sure. With me, um, I'm always going to start with 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 characters. I the characters may grow while I'm working on it, and in the end, they may be quite different from where I started. But um, particularly when writing a play, but also I think in fiction, you got to have people in there. And uh, as everyone knows about plays, you have to have conflict. Uh, for me. I don't I don't rule out that I could start with an idea, but I don't think that's the usual place where where I start. Um, but um, once I have a couple of characters having a conversation, then ideas creep in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, and they begin they're, you know, they're not. They don't necessarily have an argument in the sense that they fundamentally disagree. And uh, if they didn't talk to one another, they would be bopping one another on the right. head. I don't necessarily mean argument in such a literally way, a literal way. But there's got to be difference. There's got to be two views or two intentions or. Um, a different understanding, a different idea of what's important, and and uh, I, I love writing that in dialogue. It 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 just it it isn't it isn't all that intellectual while I'm doing mm -hmm. it. It's yep. just somehow emerges. You hear the characters? Do you are are you the kind of writer that you can literally hear the, that you can completely visualize them you can see them saying it you can literally hear their dialogue and the way that they speak in your mind while you're writing i definitely hear their dialogue and i hear the way they speak i may also have an idea of what they look like but that's less important mm -hmm. and that frankly is a good thing because as i have learned when <laughs> when casting time comes <laughs> the person who, who is uh, 
playing the character may not look anything like the picture <laughs> that you had in your mind. So maybe you better not have too much of a, you better not be wedded to that picture. But uh, as for, especially if, if, it, if you're talking about a regional accent or somebody who's from the country or from the city and somehow embodies that, um, the sound is very important. Yeah. How do you keep your ear sharp? Now, I imagine like with something like now departed, you, you know, you have a higher percentage chance of running into folks like that right around you. But in general, if you're writing something that you're not necessarily trying to tie to your immediate surroundings, how do you, how are you, what, what are your touchstones to be able to write realistic characters that you're not actively around? Well, I have never actually done this, but um, it seems like in these days of the internet, you have a lot of aids if, if you want them. Um, my wife uh, wrote a couple of stories. These were actually historical stories when she was doing, uh, based on family history, that were set in Scotland. And she she actually went and listened to Scottish accents on the, um, mm -hmm. on the internet. Um, and that was that was that was helpful to her. Uh, as I say, I haven't done it, but um, it, if I were going to try to write a character with a Scottish accent, I might well do that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Uh, you know what? I I wonder. And I I want to pay you a compliment in this as well. I mean, what's remarkable to me about Now Departed is that it's the kind of play. I mean, first off, for those listening in case you can't already imagine it writing a 10 minute play is a, a particular kind of hell i mean that that's that's a very specific um problem set to deal with and one that not a lot of people successfully straddle and in many ways i think the glib response is to do a sketch and to do um something that could almost be pulled from saturday night live whether or not it's comedic but just that framework of just kind of broad archetypes, quick problem and what have you, and go from there. What is remarkable to me about yours, about Now Departed, is that it's the kind of play that I could see a lot of people writing, and I saw and read a lot of people writing, and the nuance between it being done, uh, or that line between it being done with some nuance and some real sense of character, real sense of place, real sense of stakes, but done as a slice of life, and the line between that and just lazy writing seems to be very fine and one that not a lot of people successfully navigate. And the fact that yours had tension when afterwards I couldn't necessarily articulate what was going on or what the overall, you know, uh, log line of the piece might be. But I was like, but it grabbed me and it held me. And there was something going on there. There's a system behind it. There's characters and dynamic and attention. Um, is that characteristic of all of your work? Is that something that you found in that piece? Have you gotten that feedback before? Because that seems to be a remarkable accomplishment. Well, first of all, thank you very much. I'm I'm thrilled. Any writer would be thrilled to to know that a, a reader or viewer uh, saw that much depth in the characters um, and relationships. <clears throat> um, there's a story behind uh, Now Departed that uh, is probably appropriate to tell at this time. 
sometimes things work out you you don't you don't plan them this way and um and that's what happened in this case and i'm happy with the result i was working on my first full length well what became my first full length play and um i produced a long one act that was set in the same town where now departed is set and um the main characters were uh, neither of the characters in now departed they were they were other characters mm-hmm. the woman there are two characters in now departed a a woman in her 30s and uh, and a a man in his 80s so the man in his 80s did not he's not in that play and the woman in her 30s is in that play mm. she is the mother of a teenage girl who is one of the main characters um she's referred to in now mm. departed but she yeah. doesn't appear so i submitted this long one act and um and then and i got you know it it wasn't accepted for production but i did get feedback and um i actually uh, had a a conference um one of the rewards of of having come in second in the second tier was i got a personal conference about my one act play with a professional playwright and actor his name is john cariani and he actually is a native mainer and has written a play a very successful play called almost maine mm-hmm. which is a, a connection a collection of vignettes set in maine so john in the course of this conference this was a couple of years ago um he said to me at the end of our talking for an hour and a half he said i think there's material here that where uh, you could really develop this uh you might have a one a, a full length play here i hadn't thought of that but i went away and thought about it and i decided to try to do it and um what i did was in addition to expanding some of the existing scenes and expanding the parts of some of the existing mm-hmm. characters i introduced one new character and that is <clears throat> the the elderly man in in um now departed and he appears in three scenes in the play he hadn't been in the play at all and now he mm-hmm. is in three scenes and he in each of the scenes he meets and interacts with one of the other characters who are already were already in the play mm-hmm. so i wasn't thinking in in writing these new scenes i wasn't thinking about anything except how to turn my long one act into a full length play but when i got all through i looked at the scenes that involve this elderly man clayton and i thought to myself this might be able to stand on its own i had not consciously thought of that while writing it so um it is possible let's put it that way i don't know but it is possible 
that some of the um, the richness that you find in these yeah. characters comes because I know so much more. Yeah, about yeah, absolutely. Was would, did you introduce Clayton into your full length play as a device? Where did he come? What what motivated his creation into the full length play? I'm not sure I can ever go back to that exact <laughs> moment. I mean, there was certainly an element of where he was a device. I mean, I had so much already existing material, so many scenes, so many characters, so much dramatic continuity and central idea um, that any new character was going to have to fit into all of that. He would right. never be able to come in and take command of it. He would always right. be fitting into the interstices. But but that wasn't all that hard to do somehow. Um, mm. I don't know if that's a, a good no, answer. No, listen, I mean, it's an honest answer. I, I can't quibble with it. I mean, you look, it, you know, it's, uh, it, it is funny, you know, it doesn't surprise me because it, they are rich characters and you, what I love, and I, I guess I'll say this because it's a pet peeve of mine. And I'm sure anybody that reads plays frequently um, is that inherent urge of a writer to write backstory into dialogue. That just drives me nuts um, where you end up with these long winded expositional paragraphs of dialogue that are just, you know, uh, yeah, they just do you in. Yours is the antithesis of that, that you have these characters that just exist and you can tell the richness of the life behind them. So they don't need to explain a whole lot. And um, and that faith that the reader is going to catch them mid-stride and be right up to speed and know exactly what's going on and and get the the um, the spirit of each of their characters without a whole lot of foreplay. That to me is, uh, you know, it, it, it's the mark in my mind of a good writer. But besides that, it also makes incredibly compelling um, work to read because you're you're midstream the second you start reading. And I deeply appreciated that. But I was going to say, if if you had said, oh yeah, he really came in as a device because I wanted to bring out X, Y, and Z, and in some other aspect of the script, I was going to really compliment you. Like, I that's the most well thought out device you know as a character that i've ever read um because he is so three-dimensional and it did i did wonder if there was an element of greek chorus or something where it seems like there's a little bit of unintentional philosophy behind him that with that experience and wisdom and obviously the way that Rhonda in the script tries to bounce her some of her concerns off him and, and get engage his reaction um, I just wondered if there was a part of that 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 you know maybe he filled a, a, a narrative gap there for you in the play. Um, I think the answer is probably yes, though you know when I think of the three scenes in which Clayton appears, um, there is an element where because of his age or because he's native to the place, talking to someone who isn't native to the place. Or you know, one way or another, he is um, a kind of a wise 
a kindly person that people turn to either just to vent what's on their minds or to ask their opinions of. But it would be really hard for me, um, unless perhaps I had the script in front of me and we went over it page by page. And I mean the script of the full-length play. Right, right. It would be hard for me to say what happened when and what came first and that sort of thing. Um, most of the characters in this play do not have real models, but I, uh, Clayton is, I definitely drew, drew on my years in Millbridge, um, thinking of uh, more than one elderly person that I knew. Mm. That, um, I wasn't writing a, a, an exact copy, but I was drawing on the personalities and attitudes. The, uh, yeah, I mean, just the the syncopation, the phrasing, the word choices. I I, I thought were um, I you can't fake that. I, it it was yeah. I, I loved it. I loved the three dimensional uh, nature of him and her, and and then and also the dynamic and the way they interact. It was something so so specific, but all but therefore so universal um, because anybody could relate to it. They could see that that the way that they um, interacted. I wanted to pull back for a second because I feel like it's a major gap that I've missed. Can you talk about how you got in, how and why you got into playwriting? Where did that come from? I mean, that is a heck of a thing to wake up one day and decide you're going to start writing plays and shift from fiction. In uh, 1980, the spring of, uh, you're going to get a much more specific answer than you're expecting. Um, in the spring of 2014, my wife and I went to, um, on a uh, kind of a weekend holiday, to um, Camden, Maine. And uh, one of the days that we were there, we went down to the famous Farnsworth Museum of American Art, well, mainly American Art, which is in the nearby city of Rockland. Okay. And um, while we were there, um, I overheard a line of dialogue in the museum spoken by one of the museum goers. It would be, it would be, I, I won't, I won't tell the line. I mean, it would get us too far off track. But I found this line a very stimulating. And while we were still on the holiday, I began writing a dialogue built around that single line of, of, uh, okay. I'm sorry. I, I just got to ask for the line. That's crazy. That uh, if you're comfortable sharing it, I, I, I have to ask what that line is. A person was buying a ticket for admission to the museum. And, um, I don't remember exactly what the ticket taker said, but the the answer of this person was, I'm only here to kill time. I'm only, I'm about to enter this museum and look at the art, but really, <laughs> I'm only here to kill time. Um, you know, it's kind of outrageous. It's a, you, you don't say that even to, you might think it, but <laughs> you shouldn't really say it. So I created two characters in a museum, and one of them says this 
and the other one objects to it. So as they walk through the museum, they're having a discussion or even an argument about what it, whether that was the right thing to say and why did you say it and so on. So I wrote it as a short story once I got home, a very short story, but it was almost entirely in dialogue. And I thought after I'd finished the story, this could be a play. And then once I started writing it as a play, it, it grew larger. Um, in the end, it was still, you know, short. I think the playing time was 17 minutes. Mm. So in Maine, in Portland, there's an annual competition. It's been going on for around 20 years called Maine Playwrights Festival. You have to be a Maine resident in order to submit. And uh, it's only for one-act plays. I sent my play to that competition. I had been to some of their productions in the past, so I was aware of them. I submitted my one-act play, and it was chosen for production. And that gets your attention. You know, when you've been writing short stories for decades and decades and have had way more rejections than you've had acceptances, although you've had some acceptances too. And then you write your first one-act play, and lo and behold, it gets a production with actors and a director. That makes an impression. So I was encouraged, and um, I've carried on writing. Um, I so, have not. Yes. No, sorry, sorry. You know, finish your thought. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I have not had any other full productions, but I've had since then but I've had um, a number of staged readings since then. So I remember reading Sidney Lumet's biography where he had talked to Arthur Miller and said, uh, you know, clearly you're a talented writer. You could write novels all day long. Why do you choose to write plays? And Arthur Miller said, it's the collaboration. It's people. It's being around. It's, I, I write because this is just so much fun to be in this sandbox with all these people. Did that, did that bug bite you as well? The, the idea that suddenly there's a director, there's actors, there's actual people, living, breathing people that are fleshing out your work right in front of you. It is very exciting. It's very exciting when uh, this stuff that is just lines on a page that you wrote, suddenly there are people who are reading these lines or trying to Im impersonate or embody these characters. That's very exciting. Even when, as sometimes happens, the actors <laughs> are not reading the lines quite the way you'd like them read, <laughs> it's it um, it's very exciting. Um, but it didn't instantly, and and it is definitely it, it provides a kind of gratification that being a fiction writer or an essay writer. Uh, does doesn't provide, but um, no, it it didn't it didn't on the spot make me swear off fiction and think sure. I only only want to write plays from now on. I'd like to do both. Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely, and it is it scratches different itches. I I, I get that. Um, there is um, I just think yeah, I, I think that's always great for people to hear the excitement though of writing a play and seeing it actually come to life in front of you. What did you take away from seeing it as a production, though? I mean, you say, like, the actors didn't always read it the way you thought it should be done. Now, I mean, there's an upside. There's that immediate euphoria of seeing people 
birth your words in real life. But then there's also the flip side of it, which is that sometimes, you know, now they've all got a little bit of skin in the game as well. And doesn't always pan out the way that you wanted it to. And that loss of control as a writer, where you used to be able to micro, you can micromanage that whole world because it's all you. And now you got to share the, 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 the page with somebody else. How did that strike you? Um, I th- I'm pretty good with it. I, I think it's really important to have uh, some kind of meeting of the minds with the director Ideally, you should be able to sit down or Zoom or yeah. <laughs> with the director beforehand and and uh, talk, have a conversation before the actors are even in the room. Maybe before the actors are even chosen. That that would be ideal. That hasn't always happened. That hasn't hasn't always been possible for me. But I th- I think it is a reasonable thing to to uh, want sure and um um i love the um i love the rehearsal process um it's really quite extraordinary what can happen over a period of weeks Be- the the difference between the first time that people pick up the book and are just reading the lines and then however many weeks later however many rehearsals later um they have developed their characters more fully. They have a more mm-hmm. full, fuller understanding of who is the person speaking these lines. It, I, I neglected earlier when you were asking about my history with uh, playwriting. In um, quite a quite a long time ago, uh, a, I think when I was in my late twenties, I was in summer stock as an actor. This was in uh, Weston, Vermont. The Western Playhouse. Sure. And yeah, that's a well-known playhouse. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, I haven't been back there a long time, and I don't know what they're doing now. But at that time, um, there were a couple of musicals: one at the beginning and one at the end. Ten play, uh, nine plays in ten weeks. Can you imagine? And I was a member of that company, so we, every time we were performing in the evenings, we were spending the days learning the lines for the next week's play. It was a real baptism of fire. Most of the plays were um, uh, comedies, but uh, non-musical comedies. There were a couple of dramas, an Agatha Christie and something. Mm -hmm. That was a a very good experience. I was not a star of the company, but I wasn't just an extra either. I had some some important parts. My favorite part was... um, in a one-act play by Peter Schaefer, who's better known for Royal right. Hunt of the Sun. And, and Equus, um, yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah sure. um, so I played a, uh, a husband who's, the play is called The Public Ear, and a husband suspects that his wife is being unfaithful, so he hires a private detective. And um, um, I played the jealous husband and the, the the part from beginning to end was all about comic exasperation and it turned out that i could do that quite well <laughs> <laughs> so i have briefly had the experience of actually being on the stage and yeah. you know looking out at the audience and seeing and feeling their reactions to lines 
timing, oh boy, timing is so important, especially with comedy. Um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's such a fascist enterprise when it comes to comedy that that line between what's going to get the laugh and the involuntary unforced laugh and what isn't is so fine that, yeah, if you're not, the beats aren't right. Oh, it's just, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. The difference between success and failure in comedy. Yeah. So I don't know if this is an answer to any specific thing that you've asked, but if, if somebody were to ask me, when are you the happiest? Well, I would, I would probably, you know, have a list of a few things, but definitely one of the things on the list is to have written a play and be in the audience and people, the actor or actors deliver their lines and the audience laughs. That is, and they're supposed to laugh and they laugh. (laughs) That is just such a great feeling. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, I feel like I'd be negligent if I didn't ask about, um, your early life. And I know this is a big gear shift, but I feel like we should, if for no other reason than just to talk about the veteran part of your experience and the warrior path that you were, I'm guessing, thrust up, it was thrust upon you more. more. Was a, yeah. Yeah. Was a yeah. 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 So, um, so was that right out of high school? Was that out of college? When was it that you got drafted? Yeah, I'm old. I was born in, uh, can I say this? <laughs> I, I, people are going to be shocked. I was born in 1936, and um, I was drafted into the army in the late 50s. There was a draft at that time. Um, there was not an active war at that time. My my period of service fell between active hostilities in Korea in the early 50s and active hostilities in Vietnam the following decade. After I was discharged in 1963, I was almost called back, um, uh, not because of Vietnam, but because of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Oh, wow. It was, I think, it was the early 60s. I forget the exact year. I was in graduate school at that point, and it would have been inconvenient. But uh, as the Cuban Missile Crisis was for everybody, yeah, yeah, it's a very inconvenient (laughs) thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was in the army. I um, I went to um, Fort Benning, Georgia, for uh, basic training, and then as a draftee, of course, I had no control over where I was sent or what I was told to study. Um, I was sent to intelligence school at a small fort in Baltimore, probably closed by now, Fort Holabird. Holabird. Wow. Okay. And I was trained as an intelligence clerk. I got orders for Germany. French is the language that I studied, but I was had <laughs> orders for Germany. <laughs> sounds about right. Yeah, that, that sounds like good army logic. Yeah. And then at a very the very last minute, um, they decided that there was a problem with my security clearance. And so the rest of my time in the army was spent just waiting for that to be cleared up. Oh my lord. Um so I had a very undistinguished um, <laughs> Military service. Uh, First off, what does that mean when you say intelligence clerk? What what was that? What was that position? What was it? I'm assuming it's all clerical. It's just shuffling paperwork. Um, well, in a manner of speaking, had I ever actually per- functioned as a as a clerk, 
as an intelligence clerk, I very the kind of thing I was trained to do was look at um, aerial photographs of ground installations okay. mm-hmm. um, and maybe see whether there was were weapons camouflaged weapons. I don't know for a fact that I ever would have been called to do that exactly, but that was one of the things I was trained in. And and they found out the problem with your clearance after you had gotten through the training? Yeah. <laughs> I, say, I say there was a problem with my clearance, but I, I need to make clear that it was not anything that I did. It was, uh, uh, there were never any charges. There were never any uh, punishments threatened or anything like that. It had to do with... Uh, members of my family who were suspicious regarding wow. that. Do you know why? Did you ever know why they regarded them as suspicious? Yeah, I know. I know in great detail, but I, I prefer yeah. not to. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. Yeah. Um, so basically this was a, what, two, three year hiatus from a, life, basically. It was a two-year hitch at that okay. time for, for a draftee. If you enlisted, that was, I think, a three-year hitch, at least in the army, anyway. Okay. I don't know. I don't know about the Navy or Marines. And um, once it became clear to me, after six or so months of just doing nothing, I mean, Jeez. you know, I was collecting cigarette butts, yeah, and things like that, but uh, really didn't have any function. It was beginning to affect me. Uh, it, it was, you know, kind of like a prison without yeah. bars. Yep. Uh, so um, I began uh, to look for um, a way out, a legal way out. Sure. And um, it was um, it was a peculiarity of that time that there was a draft, and um, it wasn't all that easy, or at least seemed to me it wasn't all that easy to get out of the draft. But once you were in the army, if you were a teacher or could be a teacher, there was deemed to be a teacher shortage, so you could get out on that basis. You, it, it took more than just saying, I want to be a teacher. You, you literally had to have a teaching job that you were going to go to. Gotcha. So, so I, I got such a job at a, a private school in Cincinnati, and uh, that helped me to get discharged. So you could still apply, even though you were still in, you had the way of reaching out to them. And at this point, you had college, right? So you had a degree. I was a college graduate at that point. I had a bachelor's degree with with a major in French, and I was hired to teach French. Okay. Wow. So um, for those that have never had the pleasure of experiencing this, I think there is truly nothing worse in the military. And I mean nothing worse. Uh, bullets flying, all that. There's nothing worse than being jobless in the military and tasked out to live basically a minim- minimum security prison existence with no end in sight. I, I, I think it's just hell. Um, so yeah, that's that is no bowl of cherries. Um, what did you find that did for you? mentally did you find that there was and I, i'll give you an example i know my my father-in-law talks all the time about how one summer spent uh laying brick and building bridges was enough to put him off of manual labor for the rest of his life did you find that did you find like hey after that i you know there's going to be a drive a purpose 
like I'm never going to waste a moment again because that took all the time wasting out of, out of my sales. Was there any residual effect that you found in your life from from those years? Um, it was certainly one of the low points of my life, and it did affect me mentally and emotionally. Um, I, you know, I would like to be able to say that <laughs> I turned over a new leaf and never wasted any time. <laughs> um, but I think the main thing was I just appreciated getting back to n- normal life. Yeah. Also, the job that I got when I got out of college, uh, when I got out of the army, the job that I got in order to get out of the army was my first teaching job. And I, I wound up being a teacher for a significant part of my life. It's not the only thing I ever did, but I did it all together about 10 years, uh, five years on the high school level and much later, five years on the college level, five and a half years. Um, I really like being a teacher and, um, um, so that was the introduction to that. And I could, I could feel good about that. I could, I could feel that I went in a very short space of time from having no useful function and just l- wasting time in a destructive way to doing something that was of use to me and to my students. So it was a, it was a healthy change. Yeah. And actually that makes me, um, ask, I know this is a probably impossible question to answer, but if you hadn't been drafted, do you know what you would have done? Do you know what the next steps were that you would have taken? Um, I wasn't all that directed in my 20s. I wasn't all that clear on what I wanted to do. Um, I knew I was good at languages. I'd measured in French uh, as an undergraduate. And uh, only four years after I got out of undergraduate school, I went to graduate school that involved Chinese language, which I'd never studied before. Um, But it would be just dishonest to say that I had a clear plan. (laughs) 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 <laughs> Interesting. It was funny because I, you know, I think it's one of those things that folks from my generation um, and, and younger have a hard time wrapping their heads around. You know, when you hear about the draft and you go, okay, well, um, I can see how that could be a righteous inconvenience for people um, at a certain point in life, but you also never know. Um, was it? And was it the kind of thing that um, in some cases, even just because it revolted people or made them go, Oh, I'm never doing that again. It just gave some degree of direction just because it got them out of the house doing something completely different that maybe they hated, but um, it, it definitely pushed them. It pushed them in some way that they otherwise wouldn't have been pushed. I did not have a good experience in the military, but I saw many people who, who did. Um, um, so I don't, I don't knock the military as such, though I hated what happened to me. Sure. Um, but I, yeah, I, I saw a lot of people who, whether they, sometimes they actually knew it and could articulate it themselves. And sometimes it took somebody else to look at it, look at them and see their situation. But a lot of people seem to really benefit from the discipline and the structure and this rather clear idea of what you had to do 
to be rewarded and to mm-hmm. advance. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, uh, and, and let me be clear, because I think there's also a real, I mean, it's easy for me to sit here and say this, but I think there's sometimes also a real value in going through a really unpleasant experience in the military, because sometimes it makes you find exactly what it is you want to do. I had some a, a friend of mine recently said, oh, my son doesn't know what he wants to do in life. And yeah, he's kind of shiftless. And I was like, send him to the Marine Corps. I was like, four years of the Marine Corps, you'll know what you want to do. And it probably won't be what you're doing in the Marine Corps, but you'll know whatever it is. You'll find it. Um, did you find anything like that? Was there, was there ever a sense of, um, I guess, I, well, I, guess I have a couple of questions, but I guess the first one is, was there ever that sense of, um, yeah, uh, gratitude by comparison, just the sense of, well, I'm glad I, I will always look back to those days and go, thank God I'm not still there or any sense like, is there ever that kind of feeling that uh, just relief to, to have, to still go back to that and go, that was my lowest point and I'm no longer there. And I'm always grateful for that. I certainly felt enormous relief when I got out of, out of the, uh, the situation and was discharged. Um, and I can't really recall it now. It's not, not mm-hmm. but I, I, it seems very, very likely that for at least a couple of years after I got out, that yeah. this was a, this was something that I hadn't, I, I couldn't forget. It, yeah. it, it was that unpleasant that I couldn't forget. Um, also, there were a lot of people that I met in the military um, that I, even though I didn't, necessarily see them again i remembered them they were vivid characters mm. i mean that's what part of what writers do isn't it yeah. is uh, yeah. have characters stamped on your mind and it makes your imagination work i don't know i'm not consciously aware of ever having used a person that i met in the military as a character in a, a story i can tell you this um i got out of the military in late in 1960 and it was approximately 15 years later that I took a graduate degree in creative writing. And uh, the, very first, the very first story I wrote was about being in basic training. Really? I was about to ask that. I was about to ask if you ever creatively leveraged your time in there specifically. Uh, yeah. What, what, I don't think, what, what was that matter. like? It didn't amount to anything. Well, how did you feel? How did you feel writing it though? Did you feel, was there a bit of catharsis? Did you feel like, Hey, I got that out of my system now, or Um, I mean, to you perhaps, yeah, it was long enough ago that I, I can't recall exactly, but I wanted to write about it. Um, and yeah, and yeah, there may have been some catharsis. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's funny. It's funny. You know, sometimes people's best times and worst times happen in the military and, um, what that what that fuels? Uh, there's no telling. I want I can't let this go because I I you know I know it's in your bio and and it's just too interesting to ignore. So just talk a little bit if you can about being at the American Pavilion at the Brussels World Fair. I imagine that that would be a, a real inflection point in your life. That there's so many experiences you take away from that. Yes, you you've asked the, the uh, more than once during this conversation about was this or that that happened to me a, t- a turning point and i would say yes being at the brussels world's fair was a 
an inflection point. I mentioned that I studied French as an under as a uh, high school student and had a natural affinity for it, and um, and that I majored in French uh, at um, college. So um, that made me a, a good candidate to to uh, to get hired as a guide, a guide interprète, guide interpreter in the uh, World's Fair. And really long before I went, while I was maybe still in high school, but certainly while I was in college, I was thinking what I want most in the world is to go to Europe. I want to go that mm. just that that's what I want for Christmas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and then I got this job and I got to wear a uniform with a seal of the United States on the, uh, on the sleeve. And um, that was really nice. And um, most of the, my fellow uh, guides, there were over a hundred of us from different States. Um, most of my fellow guides uh, sailed across um, the Atlantic on um, a passenger vessel, given, oh, wow. given, given enough to, yeah, it was, you know, like being on a cruise. Um, yeah. It was March uh, or so, and the fair was going to open in March 1958. And then we were housed um, in um, uh, locally, and we could walk to our job on the, on wow. the, this was, of course, in Belgium, Brussels, Belgium. And um, got to speak French and um, got to meet a lot of people. Your job was actually to stand there and answer visitors' questions or point out things to them. The fair lasted six months, and they divided it into um, four units. My math is terrible, but maybe six weeks each. Okay. (laughs) And each guide... Uh, had six weeks in a certain station, and then he or she would move to another station. And I got to spend uh, six weeks in the art section. It was uh, American artists under the age of 45. This was in 1958. So there were some big, now big name artists, um, although perhaps not so famous then. Um, I spent another six weeks, um, basically as a kind of, uh, a very functional thing of, uh, there was a, a kind of a cinerama, a circular movie that showed a documentary about the United States. And that was very popular, of course. And, um, my job was just helping people to line up so that they could go into the next show um and who was it that puts who that put the world fair on was that was it state department who who is it that runs that i think i was technically working for the state department okay yeah yeah Yeah. and 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 so you're really there as a cultural ambassador to encourage tourism or commerce or i think you know i i kind of i know of the world's fairs i don't know enough about the world's fairs and like what the main purpose of it was but would, would was that really your role was it a commercial role or was it a tourism edge what, what was the angle that you were, I, you were I, think supposed to take? You know, I think cultural ambassador maybe comes closest to it okay. but inev- inevitably there's always a a commercial aspect or uh um 
I haven't made a study of this, but I think over the history of world's fairs going back to the 19th, maybe the 19th century, it was always the countries that were uh, proudest of their accomplishments, mm. including their industry and their commerce. Sure. They were the ones who were putting on the fairs. And in more recent times, I mean, really quite recent, to the extent that there are world's fairs anymore, yeah. I think they're more about uh, the the big countries, the, the richest and most powerful countries have less to prove now. And it's it's more uh, more recently developed or developing countries that are the ones who are eager to, to house them. Um, Oh, they still go on. Do they? Uh, they still go on. I guess, um, yeah, yeah. And uh, and they all they they maybe have an overlap with the Olympics. I mean, I don't mean that there is any any official connection. And I've never been to an Olympics, but I think some of the main reasons why a country might agree to host a World's Fair yeah. is comparable to why they would want to have the uh, uh, Olympics on their grounds. Come and look at our country and sure. see see all that's here and see how much progress we we've made. Absolutely. Of. What did it do for you? How did how, why was it an inflection point for you? And besides just being really cool to do, what, yeah. what what did you take away from it? Well, I met an awful lot of people, uh, both uh, you know other guides, uh, American and other nationalities, and I met a lot of people who were just visiting. Um, some Belgian people. Actually, and uh, just out of conversations uh, that we had at the fair, wound up inviting us to their homes. So mm. there was there was a lot. Um, I wanted to practice my French, and I had a lot of opportunity to do that. Although, of course, I was mainly speaking English in the pavilion. Right. Um, the uh, I don't know who thought it up, but somebody had the very good idea and generous idea of having the guides have six days on and three days off. And that meant that the guides found it easier to travel on their days off. Two days would be a little tight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You could go somewhere, stay there a couple of nights, come back and be ready for work the next morning. So from Belgium, I could go to Holland. I could go to Paris. I could go east to Germany and, that sort of thing. Gotcha. Um, you know, when you're whatever I was, 20, 21 years old when I went over, um, it's just, you know, your first time abroad and you you have uh, the dollar was strong then and you, you mm. could eat in, uh, you could eat well. Uh, and uh, uh, it was um it was just like a dream come true. It was really very nice. And it was prepping, it was prepping you for what was about to be a miserable three years <laughs> to follow very soon after. Oh, the army experience. <laughs> that was only two, only two years. Only two years. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is setting you up as saying you're going to have you wear two different uniforms, and one of them is going to be a lot more fun of an experience than the other. Um, yeah, I could see that. <laughs> when I came back from the World's Fair, I knew about the draft. And rather than having it hang over my head and, you know, for me to get involved in something, my next job or, or yeah, and then be called for the draft, I decided to volunteer for the draft. So when I entered the army in 1959, 
I had volunteered to be drafted. Got you. Got you. And that was that common during those years, um, especially the the mid-war years between Korea and Vietnam? Because people were like, let me just get out of the way before um, I take any other commitments. Yeah, I, I have no idea of the numbers, but there were certainly some people who did it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting. It's I, I, I think there's so much talk nowadays about should we reinstate the draft or not? And it's rare that we kind of, I think, even anecdotally find out what it was like for people that were drafted before, you know, to kind of assess that. I, I think it's an interesting experience and um, for better and for worse. God knows. Um, Arthur, listen, this has been incredibly fun to sit down and talk with you. I, I've enjoyed yeah. the hell out of this. Um, we are, I, I think I can go ahead and I'll, I'll let the spoiler out now. I know before the show, I wasn't sure I wanted to say it, but we will be doing Now Departed at our inaugural 10 minute play festival, which right now we have named Death Before Dress Rehearsal. <laughs> which will be happening uh, in uh, in November uh, here at Vet Rep, and I'm so thrilled that we'll put it on. I'm so excited uh, for your involvement, um, which we'll just leave in limbo for everybody right now, TBD. But um, whatever your involvement is, and it's really based on what we talked about. I hope you'll have a bunch. Uh, I hope you'll be very involved in it. Um, but it's just a pleasure. It's a pleasure to meet you. I have so much more appreciation for your work, even now knowing the man behind it. And um, I can't wait to see what happens next. Thank you. I've enjoyed talking to you and meeting you as well. That was the Savage Wonder of Arthur Boten. You've been listening to Savage Wonder, the podcast for warriors and artists and a production of the Veterans Repertory Theater. Check out what's going on with us, all of our lines of effort at vetrep.org. That's V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. If you like the written word, if you love reading fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, subscribe to the Savage Wonder Literary Blog. Easiest way to do that is to go to vetrep.org, go to our Now Playing tab, click on it, and you will see all of our lines of effort, including our literary blog. You can also subscribe to this podcast by going to vetrep.org, go to the Now Playing tab. Um, Or of course, you can just do it wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. If you're on iTunes, please go ahead and leave us a five-star review. It would mean a lot to us. You can say whatever you want to us in the comments, but if you could leave five stars attached to that review, that would mean a lot. Uh, We welcome feedback and comments and questions and all the rest of it, any number of forums, but especially on social media. Um, As you guys know, I have very mixed feelings about Twitter. We are on Twitter. I just don't check it very often. I'm very bad on Twitter. Very, very delinquent on Twitter. So if you're trapped under a heavy object and you're trying to reach us, probably don't try to hit us up on Twitter. That's not going to be super productive for you. But if you're on Facebook, go to Veterans Repertory Theater. That's at Veterans Repertory, R-E-P-E-R-T-O-R-Y, Theater, Theater with the E-R, not R-E. So at Veterans Repertory Theater on Facebook. On Instagram, we are at Vet Rep Theater. Again, E-R, not R-E. And if you happen to be on Twitter, yes, we're also at VetRep Theater on Twitter. But again, that is a suboptimal place to reach out to us. Um, however, reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we'd appreciate your follows. We put out an awful lot of information there when we have new lines of effort going on or new shows coming up, et cetera, et cetera. If you want to submit your work to us or to our literary blog, whether it's to a competition, literary blog, 
really anything, go to vetrep.org, go to our submissions tab, and that will give you all the information you could possibly hope to get about how to submit to us, why to submit to us, who's eligible to submit to us, um, where your submission goes, all the rest of it. So again, vetrep.org at the submissions tab. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time when we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all.